take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, and if you have your smartphones, you might go to our website and you can follow along on an outline on your smartphone if you'd like, so check that out. The last time we were in the book of Acts, I asked if it was possible that we could miss God's activity in the world because of the narrowness of a worldview. And we talked about the disciples who went on a walk on the road to Emmaus and how later in the walk Jesus had met up with them and they didn't recognize him because their worldview just couldn't fit the idea that Christ had resurrected from the dead. Even though he told them he was going to do it, they didn't recognize him on the road. Now, if there are other things going on about God blinding their eyes or whatever, we don't know because uh, it, it doesn't really indicate any of that going on. But the, the, the physical reality of Jesus in front of them, the facts staring them in the face, these were unrecognizable to them. You know, this is not a case of maybe, you know, finding Waldo in a crowd of thousands of other faces, but rather recognizing a person who's standing right in front of you. And for our applications, recognizing the the supernatural work of God right in front of us. Now, if there's anything that I would like to avoid, it is being blinded by my own biases, uh, by maybe a cultural view that would not have me anticipate or welcome the work of God in my life or in the lives of others. I don't want to miss the truth. I don't want to miss reality. So we really want God's help in this. And I think the the Bible gives us a couple indications as to why this might happen for us. I mean, why is it that I might miss God's activity? You know, Nick, Nick talked about it, that you go, you know, to Guatemala, you go to some foreign place, and you're just kind of sensitized to God working, and then you come here, and you just kind of get back in a routine. And uh, how is it that that, that can happen? Well, on a, on a spiritual level, and I get that sometimes, it, you know, we're just, our ears just aren't perked up, or it might be a cultural thing, but the Bible gives us a couple of other reasons as to why that might happen. For one, our sin can keep the truth from being recognized. In John 3, verses 19 and 20, it provides some commentary of Jesus on the topic, and it says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so one of the forms of sin is a pride that that keeps us from admitting, recognizing things in our own lives or recognizing the truth of a situation or when we may be wrong. And so sin can keep us from recognizing the truth. Also, spiritual immaturity and an inappropriate allegiance can cause us to miss the truth. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, 
as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. For even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, uh, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? And so what Paul is saying is, they're not ready to digest, take in the full truth of the word of God because there was spiritual immaturity. And they were stuck there. And it was also marked, that spiritual immaturity was marked by inappropriate allegiance. So people were saying, well, I follow Paul. Another would say, no, 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 I follow Apollos. And are these not all human beings? Is what Paul is saying? I mean, when, it, when a human allegiance supersedes the truth of God, we get stuck. And it's like a, a limiter to our growth, to our spiritual growth. Now, many people never get beyond these allegiances. And unfortunately, we live in a very evangelical religious area where you have two major denominational hubs right here. And not that there's anything wrong. I'm not trying to dog the denominations, but just that it's easy for people to get an allegiance to a denomination. Well, I grew up AG. That, that's just what I believe, people say. Or I grew up Reformed. I just can't see it another way. Or my parents and friends, they're, they're Baptists. I can't go against them. So it doesn't matter what group. I'm not dogging the particular group. What I'm dogging is the, the human allegiance over Christ. So we have to be wary of any allegiance to a human grouping that supersedes the scripture. I see this all the time where you might be talking about a particular doctrine that fits a, a particular denomination. You lay out scripture that clearly shows that, you know, there's something rotten in Denmark with a particular doctrine and people say, oh, you know, that's just not what I believe. Here's, here's the scripture. Here's why you believe Something needs to change. You don't know. I, you know it's just, that's just the way I've grown up. That's just what I believe. Or this is what my friends think. I'm, it's like something's not connecting. Why is that? Because there is a, they're stuck. Because you, you, can't, you can't work outside. Now listen, I'm not pointing fingers at everybody else. I'm talking to us here, right? Because we, we can do the same thing, right? So there, there's a danger zone. How do we recognize this in us? Well, we recognize it in us when, for instance, we refuse to even have a conversation that challenges our thoughts, all right? I guess, you know, if I were a, I don't know, a, a doctor, a pediatrician, and, you know, you see hundreds of patients that come in, you could probably recognize people that are, you know, good parents, healthy parents, and you recognize those that aren't. And in a same similar fashion, I think, as a pastor, at least being one for almost 30 years now, I can recognize some people that are on a good track, healthy track, and others that aren't. And when people refuse to even have a conversation about an issue, because maybe they're afraid that they're, you know, things are going to be exposed, that's a problem. That's a problem for us. And, and so none of us are immune to this. Or maybe, you know, we, we refuse to listen to 
to both sides of an issue, or when loyalty to a a person, we're going to have loyalty to a person and cut relationships off with other people because of loyalty to some other person. These are all signs that there is an allegiances that can be inappropriate. And we see this sometimes, that when, when people get upset, you know, we like, will pick sides. But you, you never want to, you know, if, if your friends are asking you to make the same enemies they have, that's not a very good friend, right? You don't have to have the same enemies that other people have. You have to dislike the people that other people dislike. You see this a lot. You see this in churches as well. That's just not a, not a fair thing to expect of people. It's okay that people love people that maybe you, are, you got sideways with, right? Um, so all of these are allegiances that, that may indicate there's, a, there's an unhealthiness, and uh, this is an issue. So sin, spiritual immaturity, inappropriate allegiance, these can cause us to miss the truth. So how can we take the blinders off? What can we do to deal with that in us? Well, let's go back to the episode with Emmaus and the disciples that were walking along with Jesus. They didn't recognize him. It's in Luke 24. And the disciples, you know, noticed Jesus, and then they were later kind of recounting how they got to the point in recognizing him And in verse 34 of Luke 24, it says that, or excuse me, verse 32, it says this, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, and catch this, while he opened to us the scriptures, while he opened to us the scriptures. I mean, what can break through a stony heart? What can break through when we're blinded by our own allegiance? Okay? The Word of God can. The Word of God can. Hebrews 4.12 says this. For the Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's another way of saying that the Word of God is able to lay us bare. It slays us. It shows us our thoughts and and motives. I read one person who fashions himself as a spiritual leader go on a diatribe against the Bible being called the Word of God. And he, uh, he basically posited the idea that Christians are so insecure, they need to prop up the Bible to have confidence. Well, I actually agree with him on that, that the Bible gives confidence. Here's what the Bible has to say, Romans 15:4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, for through endurance and through the encouragement of of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then we read this in Psalm 119, 140, in the New King James Version. Your word is very pure, therefore 
your servant loves it. Or 1 Peter 1.25, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now is the word which, uh, which by the gospel was preached to you. It endures forever. That's the word of God. So if the Bible is a way to combat spiritual immaturity, uh, it helps us then so that we're not going to be fooled by maybe other movements, other people, other programs that maybe deter us from a pure devotion to the Word of God. There's an amazing passage, I find. And the new things I see just in these few verses every time I look at it. But it's in 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, turn to it. 2 Peter chapter 1. And there, Paul is recounting a situation in which he was at the event of the transfiguration. And you might remember of when God was talking to Jesus on this mountain. Other disciples were there. You remember Peter wanted to build three you know, different tabernacles and all this. And uh, Jesus is glowing, right? It's, it's like his deity was let out for just a brief period of time. And these disciples witnessed it. And so the... The transfiguration was significant that it was the start of the public ministry of Jesus. Now, Peter, in 2 Peter, was battling some who said that the supernatural work of God was a myth. And so Peter just gently says, well, listen, I'd like to remind you, by the way, that I was there. On the Mount of Transfiguration, I was an eyewitness to that event. We heard God's voice. I mean, we saw Jesus light up like the sun. But then he goes on to say, but we have something else for which we can also have confidence, maybe even more confidence, in God's revelation or communication to us. Now, I want you to check out what's being set up here. I had this experience. I had this eyewitness account, but there's something else in which God conveys to us his truth and which I can have even more confidence in. This is what he says. First Peter, or Second Peter, excuse me. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And listen to this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The prophetic word more fully confirmed. It's as if Peter is saying, yes, I was there. I was an eyewitness to this transfiguration. But the word of God confirmed it. Because the word of God prophesied about this event. So let us, let us just kind of wrap our arms around this. If you're in a dark place, if you need the lights turned on in your head and heart, if you need to understand how it is that God can work, where do you go? The Word of God is the place to go. My dear friends, if your worldview needs expanded, then I challenge you to read through the Bible. Allow your mind and heart to be adjusted to the wisdom of God and watch what happens. So, this is kind of a, a precursor to us continuing on in Acts because I think my prayer certainly is, Lord, stretch my faith to what it is that you can do. And the best way that we can do that is to read the testimony of others, to read the testimony of Scripture as to how God was working and understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he can still work today. And so we go to Acts 9, verse 36. It says this. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Now Tabitha is an Aramaic name. Dorcas is a Greek name. And both mean gazelle. But I want you to notice how the spiritual life of Dorcas is lifted up, okay? It's not because there were these, you know, um, some kind of, uh, you know, sensational things that went on in her life. It says she was full of good works and acts of charity. In other words, generosity marked her life. Kindness marked her life. And it says that she was full of good works. That means that she kept being generous. She kept being kind over the long haul. She was not a flash in the pan. Even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of discouragement, she kept being generous. And she continued having an impact. I'm convinced that if our church wants to continue to have an impact in this community or around the world, generosity is going to be a hallmark. And you've been extremely generous. We read about the birth of the church in the book of Acts and how they were constantly sharing with one another, how the, the outside community, those outside the church, thought highly of the believers because of how kind they were to one another. That fits Jesus' prayer in John 17. He says that 
I want the world to know that I've been sent by God. How? Because they're going to see that you love one another. They're going to see how you treat one another. Whether it's our partnership with other ministries like Fairbanks, Life360, or Weaver School, or overseas in Guatemala, your generosity is a witness to God's movement. It makes an impact. It's great encouragement to others. Verse 37, in those days she became ill and she died. And it says, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now this was likely a, an outdoor rooftop, which were often, often had lattice for walls. Those were common then. These latticed walls would not put great stress on an, an upstairs floor. Um, plus they were cooler. It was open air, and that would make them conducive for the, the placement of, of bodies prior to a burial. In verse 38, since Leda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Uh, some commentators say that you can't read in here any presumption given to Peter about maybe facilitating raising Dorcas from the dead. Well, frankly, I find that a little hard to believe that uh, some, of the, uh, some of the widows, whoever they sent to go to get Peter uh, to Joppa, would hastily send somebody on a three-hour trip for Peter to come back and just do a, a funeral. Seems rather odd to me. They were in haste. They went a long way. They went immediately because I think they were expecting something. And then verse 39 says, so Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. One thing I love about this passage is how it elevates women, which is something that Luke often does. He kind of re-enfranchises those who were disenfranchised, and certainly women in that day were. And shows how God used one woman with one talent and multiplied her efforts exponentially. All right? I mean, we, we see the influence. An apostle comes to her hours, he was hours away, hurriedly comes to her. Others are distraught over her passing, and there are remnants to her legacy to show her generosity. There's clothes that they're showing Peter. It makes me think, what will people show at your funeral to demonstrate your legacy, to demonstrate your generosity, your kindness? Let us think that God will use us no matter what the gift. You don't have to be upfront teaching or doing a class to be used by God. And I know that there, there's always people with a crowd this size, people think, I have really nothing to offer. But God used a seamstress to greatly impact a community. No matter what your gift is, no matter what you're good at, use that for the good of others. There's a great sense of loss here as Peter is surrounded by widows weeping in their grief holding up the garments that Dorcas had made for them. 
And the text seems to imply that they, they simply could not imagine life without her. They could not let go, could not have her depart from this community. She had so demonstrated godliness and servanthood, they desperately wanted her back. And verse 40 says, and Peter put them all aside. He knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. Now, I love that in a world of sensationalism, Peter does this privately. He sends them all outside. It wasn't so he could get glory. There were no stage tricks here. There was no sleight of hand. He knelt, he prayed, she arose. Verse 42 and 43, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So word had spread and led many to faith of the risen Lord. It's no insignificant detail that Peter stays with a tanner because tanners were considered unclean by Jews. And what God is doing is just opening the door to Gentiles. And it's going to be full-fledged later as we read on in the book of Acts. But what can we gain from this story? God rose a person up from the dead. Can God do that today? But Gary Edwards, one of our own, had his father, who was an electrician, working on a transformer. And thousands of volts of electricity went through him. And he was burned over 85% of his body, third-degree burns. Gary said it blew a hole in his back because the electricity had to leave the size of a human head. Got to the hospital, he's pronounced dead there at the hospital. And Gary's mother said no, with the doctor standing there, asked them all to pray that he would live. And guess what happened? That man came back to life. Amazing story. And guess what? The doctor was so moved. The doctor came to Christ. (laughs) You know, you see something like that, and you know God can work. God can do whatever he wants to do. Let not any of our theological constructs limit what God can do today. I prefer to believe that God can do whatever he wants. Just ask Gary Edwards. He'll tell you. Let's pray.